trajectory. And if you turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 8, we have been uh, leaping through the book of Romans. Um, more, more than one person has said, like, wow, we're covering a lot of ground. And, uh, and yes, that's true. Uh, I, I think that the book is written to be, to be read and to be absorbed in large uh, chunks, and there's a lot of good stuff in the individual verses. But uh, we're going to slow down a little bit. We'll be reading uh, the first 17 verses of Romans 8 this morning and then, and then spending our time uh, absorbing what it is that, that God is saying to us here. So Romans 8, starting in verse 1, the scriptures say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you thankful for your work on the cross. And in the work that your father did by the power of of the Holy Spirit in raising you from the dead because we believe that our life is connected to yours. 
in ourselves. We cannot please you. We are separated from you. We can do nothing to earn salvation. But as we sang, you made Jesus sin for us. Though he never sinned, though he did nothing wrong, you made him sin that we might be delivered from our sins and that we might be declared to be righteous. And not just a kind of righteous, but the bold and incredible claim that we are as righteous as Christ himself because it is his righteousness that we possess. And so, Father, I pray that built on this fact, we would hear the truth of the scriptures this morning, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Because I believe it is so easy to condemn ourselves over and over and over again and to live in a way that is less than what you have planned less than what you desire for us. And so, Father, I pray that we would be those this morning who hear and who are confident of our righteousness in Christ, not our own righteousness, but our righteousness in Christ, and then that we would go and live following the will and the prompting and the way of the spirit that you have filled us with, because that is your desire and plan. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Um, I would consider myself um, not, a, not, a, not a practicer right now for, uh, for, for dietary reasons, but I would, I would consider myself a, um, an expert on donuts. Um, I have... I have spent a number of, of years cultivating uh, Dunkin' Donuts as the perfect uh, office outside of the office, as the perfect office outside of home, and it's got everything that you need. There is uh, good coffee. They are open, many of the locations, uh, some of them 24 hours a day. They're just constantly open. Uh, there is Wi-Fi. Uh, it's a great public meeting spot. And uh, the music is just loud enough that everybody in the room can't hear what you're talking about. Um, the problem with Dunkin' Donuts is that they have donuts, um, which are very, they're very good. Um, here's, here's the thing with donuts, um, particularly when you get the assorted box. Uh, you can't always judge the donut by its appearance, right? The, the filling can make all the difference, right? Um, is it is it filled or, or not? If it's filled, you really got to like, you got you to kind of position yourself to see what's going on there before you touch it because you don't touch the donut and then not take it. That's disgusting. Um, you know, you don't, don't get your germy nasty all over it. You know, you got to kind of look and you got to look at that, the, the place where they put the filling, right? And you got to say, what is going on inside of this donut? Uh, because Bavarian cream, that's good stuff. But the jelly filling... No, oh man, it's too much, it's too sweet, and it can just, if, if you're not, if you're like, hey, just get me a donut, and somebody brings you a donut, the filling can ruin everything. The key, the key is the filling. Now this, I believe, is a principle that runs through the whole of the Christian life. The key is 
the filling, not the external. The external represents what is going on inside. The key is what is going on inside. Now, Paul has been building a case all throughout the book of Romans of what the Christian life is. In summary, it is this, that we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. That, that we have nothing filling us apart from God that would ever cause God to say, you earn your place in heaven, you have purchased the right to eternal life. No, what the Bible says is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've not lived up to God's righteous standard. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and what we are filled with, the way that we act apart from Christ, is a way that earns God's wrath. But The Bible says that the good news is that God has made a way for us to be filled with righteousness, for us to receive righteousness, not by our own actions, but because of the action of Christ. And that is the good news about Jesus, is that there is another way to obtain righteousness. And then Paul is discussing in, in Romans 6 and in Romans 7, he's discussing the, the, uh, the, the battles that we have and the struggles that we have as we try to live in this righteousness. But he comes to this amazing place in Romans chapter 8 where his focus is on the fact that we are filled with righteousness in Christ. And that that filling has a particular flavor, right? That, that we might view the filling as something that is permanent and is ours and is not dependent on what we do. And that is the good news of the gospel. Paul begins by saying this. Based on everything that he has said leading up to this point, That's why the therefore is there. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what he is saying. If you are in Christ, if Christ is your savior, if you have put your faith in him, then you will not be condemned ever. Never? No, not ever. Ever. That is good news. The Bible says in another place, specifically, that Jesus' ministry is one of deliverance and saving and not one of condemnation. John chapter 3, verse 17, right? One of the loneliest Bible verses, right? You know, it has to compete with its much more popular neighbor, John 3, 16. John 3, 17 says this, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That is Romans 8.1 language right there. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Jesus is the way of escape out of the condition of condemnation that we are born into. Jesus comes to save and not to condemn. 
I believe that, that Christians in general need to be very careful as they go about their business of sharing the gospel. We need to be very careful that we don't spend a lot of time finger-wagging and talking about how rotten and wicked other people are. That we acknowledge that the entrance requirement into the kingdom of God is to acknowledge that we have completely and utterly failed and we have no righteousness of our own. And that we have been saved by the righteousness of God. That we have been saved by the work of Jesus. And so we go to others and we say, we too have sinned. But we have found deliverance in Jesus and you can have it too. Instead of saying, we are right and we are good and you are wrong and you are bad. Now, Paul points out in this passage as well that there are two laws. These are the laws of the filling, okay? You know, now there may be some disagreements in this room about, you know, whether jelly is a good filling, which it's not, or that Bavarian cream is a good filling, which it is. Uh, it is, it is inferior to the superior filling of Boston cream, which, um, you know, some people rip on Boston. I'm thankful for Boston because I like Boston cream. It's good. They, you compress an entire cake, right, or a pie into a donut. That's brilliant. There are two laws with regard to spiritual filling. In this passage, Paul says that there is a law, the law of sin and death. And this is the way the law of sin and death works. We can choose to attempt to achieve our own righteousness by following God's law, but no one can do that. And so the law of sin and death is this. You must obey perfectly, and if you do not, you are condemned. But then there's the, the second gift, or second law, and that is the law of the spirit of life. And it says this, you can receive the gift from Jesus. You can receive the gift of his righteousness. You can be filled with the righteousness that he has achieved in his life, and you can be set free from all that you have earned yourself. The passage here says that God has done in law two what could not be done in law one. We see that, where is it? In verse three, that, that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. There is a defect in the law of God, not in the law itself. The law is good and holy and perfect. Paul has said that in a prior passage in Romans. But the weakness of the law is the fact that we, fallen human beings, are called and required to keep it. The law cannot make anybody perfect. No one can keep the Ten Commandments. Nobody can keep the remainder of the commandments because we are unable to do it. And so the law comes and shows us what is good and righteous and holy and true and what God would have us do, and then we proceed to fail and mess it up. But God accomplishes what the law could never do. 
by sending Jesus in the flesh. He takes on humanity and identifies with us. And then God pours the sin of humanity on him. God credits it all to him. He says, you are going to be the punishment for all the wrong that they've ever done. And it says here that he condemns sin in the flesh. On, uh, on Good Friday, Nancy and I watched uh, The Passion. For uh, me, it was probably the, I mean, I don't know, I've seen it a bunch over the years. Nancy watched it in the theater with me the first time it came out and then did not watch it again until Good Friday, just because of the, the brutality and the graphic nature of the stomach-turning feeling of that movie. It is brutal. The whole time we watched it, I thought, that's my sin right there, right there. My sin is doing this. Not the Romans. This is happening because of, 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 of me and because of what I've done. God condemns sin in the flesh, in the presence of Jesus. He doesn't deserve it, but he receives it because he is taking the place of sinners. Now imagine the worst thing that you have ever done. Maybe it's a thing that nobody knows about. Imagine the worst things that have ever been done. The thing that you would say that earns a person a place in hell for eternity. That. God puts those things on Christ and condemns him. That fulfills the righteous requirement of the law because the law says somebody must pay for sins. And so God puts those sins on Jesus and condemns him. He willingly embraces our sins for us. Jesus takes it upon himself. And he is punished. And that means that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled, right? We have this, uh, we're having this experience with our youngest now where in order to go on a field trip, right, for school, he must have a signed uh, and filled out permission slip, right? Now, he cannot fill out the permission slip himself at this point. You know, he'll write all kinds of random stuff on it. He's a lot like me. He's just like, what is this all about? I'm just supposed to write some stuff on these lines. He's just like words, 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 you know. And you look at it and it'll be like completely random, nothing to do. You know, he's just like, I got to fill this thing out. It's just another paper, Right? Now, if he turns that thing in, no, no field trip for him. But someone else can fill it out for him. Someone else can authorize that he go. In fact, it is required that someone else fill it out. And so Jesus says to the one who comes to him, who says, I need a substitute, I need a savior, I need someone to take my sins. Jesus says, I will take your sins. I will give you my righteousness. Now, if we sign that with our own name, that's not going to be recognized because there is no worth or righteousness or power behind it. But Jesus signs the slip for us with his own name. This one has my righteousness. And you know what the good news is? That counts for us. That counts. And so it's not just like we get a little bit of righteousness. 
We get enough. It's, we get the full, complete, total righteousness of Jesus credited to us, and it fills us. And so what we need to do, the scripture says here, is to think of ourselves this way and to begin a new kind of reckoning or thinking about our own lives. Look in verse 6. We're, we're told here to set the mind on the spirit and to no longer set the mind on the flesh. Setting the mind on the flesh is this. I must do this in order to be righteous and to be saved. I must do this in order to maintain God's love for me. I must do this in order to perform and be 100% righteous so that God will say, that right there is a good person. Paul says it's a complete wrong way to think about how God thinks about us. Instead, we're to set the mind on the spirit. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. Paul says. The mind set on the flesh says, this is the way that seems right to me. These are the rules that I will keep and follow. This is how I will earn my righteousness. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end that it leads to death. To say I'll do it myself is hostile to God. There's a, a way that seems right to God, and he has set it out for us. He has built it. He has made the path, and he says, come to me in this way. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's not because Jesus is, is stingy and doesn't want other religions to get equal time, right? What it is, is he's saying, this is the only path that is going to satisfy God's righteous demands. I'm going to be the one who's going to take sin upon myself. I'm the one who's going to accomplish your righteousness. All those other promises are empty. There's nothing there. The mind that's set on the flesh says, I can do it another way. I can achieve righteousness through Buddhism, or through volunteer service, or through this or that. And therefore, it says the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It defends its sinful choices and says, this is how I'm going to please you. It demands that, that righteousness be established apart from God's enabling. I will, I will do it myself. And it embraces an impossible possibility. Because the Bible says, by works of the flesh, no one will be justified. And we say, no, I'm going to do it apart from the gift. I'm going to do it my way. And so what Paul says is, don't set your mind on the things of the flesh. Instead, set your mind on the way of the Spirit. Because those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But this is the good news. If we have put our faith and trust in Christ, then we can throw away the law of the flesh. We can say, I'm going to cease striving and stop trying to earn my righteousness. And instead, I'm going to embrace it as my very identity, something which is my present 
possession which I already own, which I have been given, which I have every right to. I believe that each and every Christian should be able to humbly and honestly say, I am a righteous person because of what God has done for me. I am pleasing in his sight because of what Christ has done for me. And therefore, because of what he's done, I will walk in gratitude and love and mercy. Instead of doing those things to try to earn God's affection. Look at what he says here. You are not, this is verse 9, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if Christ dwells in you. Now, I think a lot of Christians read this verse this way. What they see in the first eight verses is this amazing idea, right? That they can be righteous by the the law of the spirit, but that following the law of the flesh leads to death. And they're like, okay, okay, so I need to do this. And then then they see this this verse here in 9 and they say, you know, okay, good. I'm not in the flesh, but I'm in the spirit. And then they see the comma there, and, and Paul says, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, and then they're like, how do I know the spirit's in me? How do I really, truly, honestly know? Am I really filled in the spirit, or am I deceived? Like, is it in me, or is it not in me? Because this is what this verse says, is that the filling makes all the difference, right? You know, if, if, if God has his pick of all humanity to be his own and there's a there's a bunch of jelly donuts over here who think that they're full of Boston cream you are not taking over my illustration here um, you know and and God only likes Boston cream and they're over here and they're like we're so we're, we're ready and he's like nope you're not filled with the right thing right this is the fear is that is that people will be deceived and that they will think that they're filled when they're not filled And then they read the next verse. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And they're like, what is going to happen to me? I think it is the sign of a sensitive, honest, searching conscience that says, I want to be pleasing to God but which can go into overdrive and begin to look at all of the assurances and encouragements of Scripture as conditions which must be met, right? It's a shifting back into the the law of the flesh, a thinking, what must I do in order to avoid being disappointed or put to shame when Jesus comes to collect his people? The filling makes all the difference. This is what Paul goes on to say. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This, I believe, is the the, the cause of of much of the struggle or strain that, that exists in believers when they think, maybe I'm not in the spirit. Maybe because I still sin or because I still fail or because I don't perfectly respond to God's spirit or obey in all things all the time. Maybe that's proof that I'm lost. No, it's proof 
of what Paul says here in verse 10. The body is dead because of sin. The body's dead because of sin. Expect there to be struggle. Expect there to be battle. Expect there to be these times where we saw in Romans 7 where the mind says, I affirm God's law and I love God's law and I love God's way and I want to do what's right. And then the flesh says, yeah, we're not doing that. We're doing the other thing. We're doing what we want. And then and we think, am I really saved? Would a Christian act this way? The presence of a battle is not evidence of a lack of salvation. In fact, I would say the presence of a battle is evident that the conscience understands what God requires and that the Spirit is there encouraging and calling us to do the righteous thing. We need to ask the question of who the Spirit is, and then we can answer the question of how the leadership of the Spirit works and how we respond, and then we can talk about how we know that the Spirit of God lives within me. One of the things that I think is, is, is fun about a passage like this is that when we talk about filling and how the filling makes all the difference, from beginning to end, this passage is filled with observations about who the Spirit is. It's kind of amazing. So we ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit? I was discipling a guy a number of years ago, and, uh, and, and we were just sitting there doing Bible study back and forth, and um, I asked him the question. I said, hey, what, what does the Bible teach about who the Holy Spirit is? And he was like, have you ever seen Star Wars? And I said, yeah. You know, you know anything about me, you know I've seen Star Wars a lot. Yeah, I, I might be remotely familiar with Star Wars. He's like, do you know the Force? Yeah, he's like, that's what the Holy Spirit's like. Okay, let me deconstruct. Like, let's start over. Okay, let's start with, let's start with the, the Bible. Um, let's do that. Let's start with the Bible and look at who the Holy Spirit is. Verse 2 of this passage says that the Spirit is the Spirit of life. The Spirit brings life. His presence negates death. When the Spirit is in us, he removes condemnation. He removes the possibility of condemnation. Imagine it this way. Though the Spirit cannot be subdivided into little particles and little bits, and he can't, he's, he's, he's unified, he's, he's one. Think about it this way, that, that when we are saved and we are filled with the Spirit, that God places his very life within us right? Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians that, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the Spirit is in us, right? This, this most valuable thing put in this clay pot. You know what that does to the container? It increases its value, and it guarantees that it will not be thrown away. If the Spirit is in us, the Spirit will not leave, and the Spirit brings life. Second, verse 4 says this, that, that, the, that, that we're called to walk according to the Spirit. And so the Spirit is the one by whom we are to walk. He leads, he guides, he prompts, he gives us guidance. The Spirit is one, verse 6, who brings life and 
peace. Verse 9 says this, that the Spirit is the Spirit of God. Now, the Spirit is a distinct being, an expression of, of God. He is, a, he is a person who has thoughts and who has uh, actions and who does things, but he is part of the same being that we call God. There is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons with one essence. And the Spirit is part of God. And when he is within us, it means that God himself dwells within us. In verse 9, again, the second half of that verse says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. When Jesus lived and walked on this earth and he lived his ministry out, it often says that the Spirit was present or the Spirit prompted him. It was the enabling power of the Spirit that led Jesus. He responded to him. He acted based on his power. And so the Spirit is, is there to give us strength and ability. And the Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ which means that Christ is in us, as we are promised in Colossians 1.27, that says, Christ within you is the hope of glory. The passage here also speaks of the power of the Spirit and what he accomplishes. Look at verse 11. It says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, right? Speaking about this, the spirit of the Father, the spirit is the power by which God raised Jesus from the dead. That's illustrated in a number of different scriptures in the New Testament. The, the work that the spirit does is that it raises Jesus from the dead. The Bible features this as the greatest miracle in the whole of scripture, the resurrection of Christ. Do you know what the second greatest miracle, I believe, is? If you look at uh, Ephesians, and if you look right here at this very passage, it says this. The first and greatest miracle is raising Jesus from the dead. The second one, it says, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The resurrection of fallen humanity is the second greatest miracle, the conversion and changing of the human heart. We think that the greatest miracles are things like feeding the 5,000, right? Because honestly, a lot of times I think, man, if we could do the kind of stuff that they did in the New Testament, more people would believe nowadays. It'd be cool. There's a little bit of walking on water, right? You know, a little bit of feeding the multitudes, you know. I mean, man, people would, would pack in. But Jesus said that we would do greater works than he did, right? And then we look back and we say, where are those greater works? Okay, now look, Jesus ministered for three years, and right before he went to the cross, he was saying things to his disciples like, do you not yet believe? Why don't you believe? And Luke points out it's because the Spirit had not yet been given, right? Now, it's popular and fun to pick on Peter, right? Because he's kind of a knucklehead and does knucklehead stuff. But we kind of do knucklehead stuff like Peter too, don't we? I think that's part of the reason why Peter, who probably could have controlled what the New Testament looked like, was like, no, nah, leave that in. Go ahead. Put it in there. It's fine. You know, you guys have been 
picking on me for years. Go ahead, put it in there. Um, Peter, who denied Christ the night before Jesus went to the cross, who Jesus restored on the beach, Peter gets up, and after years of Jesus preaching and only have 120 followers, Jesus preaches one sermon and three, or Peter preaches one sermon and 3,000 people convert. How is that possible? Because the Spirit was present with him. Because the Spirit was the one who was doing the work. That same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the one who gives life to the mortal body, who raises the flesh, yes, on the last day, but also who converts the human heart. And that Spirit, the Bible says, dwells within us. It is the Spirit who enables us to put to death the deeds of the body. 2 Timothy 1.7 says that God hasn't given us a, a spirit of fear. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. It doesn't come inside of us and say, run away, right? No, the Spirit, 2 Timothy 1.7, is one of power and love and self-control. Which means that we can say, God, what is your will? You want me to, to love you with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, and you want me to love my neighbor as myself? Let's do that together. And then in dependence on the Spirit, we then begin to put to death the deeds of the body, the deeds of our sinful desires. Verse 14 says that the Spirit is the one who leads us. If sin causes a rift between our Heavenly Father and divorces us from him and separates us and creates a, a gulf between us and him, and over here, far from him, we are condemned and unacceptable to God. What good news is it to, to see in verse 15 that the spirit is not called the spirit of slavery, that would cause us to fear, but instead the spirit is called the spirit of adoption as sons. What does John 1.12 say? To as many as believed in him, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. God gives us a spirit that causes us to call out to God, what? I fear you, don't destroy me. No, Abba, Father, you are my dad, and I am your child. That's what the Spirit accomplishes within us. Verse 16 says that he's the Spirit that bears witness that we are the children of God. That salvation is my present possession. That it is something that has been given to me, not something that is far away and to be attained or to be maintained by my good works. No, we go back to Romans 8.1 and it says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how does the leadership of the Spirit work? The Spirit takes God's Word and applies it to us and speaks to us and ministers to our hearts and tells us that we are to put to death the deeds of the body. And so when the Spirit points out sin, when the Spirit exposes sin to us, we are to respond by saying, yes, Lord, and then embracing the battle. 
think it's important that we understand the way that this works, okay? Romans 8.1 says that if we have put our faith and trust in Christ, then we are justified sinners, okay? We have failed, but God has declared us righteous, a justified sinner, okay? That means that we are justified sinners depending on a gracious spirit to fight indwelling sin, right? Maybe you don't like toasted coconut, you know? That's kind of like a meh exterior. I love toasted coconut. But if the filling is good, it redeems the outside. Does that make sense? That's the way it works for us. There are things in our life that others may see. There are things that we may see where we say, I am not perfect. But it doesn't matter if we are perfect or not. What matters is what is within us. And what is within us then causes us to fight indwelling sin. We are justified saints depending on a gracious spirit to fight indwelling sin. Okay? Now here I think is the tendency to go in reverse and to think that this, this works in reverse, okay? And this is how it would look in reverse. We fight indwelling sin to maintain the presence of a gracious spirit so that we can know that we're justified saints. Is that, did you hear that? That's the, that's, that's the opposite. We are justified saints depending on a gracious spirit to fight indwelling sin, right? But so often, we turn it into, I must fight indwelling sin so I can maintain the presence of the Spirit so that I can know that I'm a justified saint. That's the law of the flesh. The law of the flesh says what you do determines whether or not you're righteous before God. The law works like this. Look at that mess. Clean it all up right now. Right? And no one can do it. Yeah. Two weeks ago, Right. When they knocked over the, uh, the, the last piece of the portable at the end of the day, the guys were all up there on the platform. I was spent. I was tired. I had no energy left, you know. Um, but they, they took boards and they pushed them up against the, the second half of the building and they knocked it all over. And as soon as it went down, I, I screamed out, now clean it up, you know. <laughs> Pick it all up. What's wrong with you? Um, just for fun because it felt like something fun to say. The spirit works like this. You are God's child. You are accepted. And you are righteous in Christ. Now let's work on this. 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 And all throughout the process, he assures us that we are the children of God. How do I know that the spirit of God lives within me? First, I would say this, the Spirit bears witness. It says in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There is an assurance that dwells within us that when we say, am I God's child, the Spirit says yes. Now, that does not mean that we can't get, you know, wrapped around this thing and confused about it. And that's why there are some other good evidences in scripture that the spirit is speaking to us 
in my preaching class in, in seminary, I had to find a very particular sermon text for the first sermon that I had to preach, a sermon text with three parallel ideas, right, so that I could use one word, like the word convicts, and then, you know, develop the sermon outline because that's what the teacher wanted, and I wanted to get an A, and so I did exactly what he told me, and my sermon outline was this, John 16, verses 8 through 11. Speaking about the coming of the Spirit, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, he will convict, and that was my key word, convict. Three convictions of the Spirit. Conviction number one, he will convict us concerning sin. Second conviction, he will convict us concerning righteousness. Third conviction, he will convict us concerning judgment. And then Jesus goes on in the, the, the remainder of the text to, to describe the specifics there. But think about it. The Spirit comes and he convicts us concerning sin. He speaks to the non-believer and says, you are a sinner. And he speaks to the believer and says, that is sin. He, he works through the conscience and says, don't do that. That's not right. Don't go that way. He also convicts concerning righteousness and think of the two ways that that can work out understanding the scripture and under the influence of the spirit we understand i cannot be righteous on my own right the donuts aren't going to fill themselves you know that's why that guy whatever his name was clarence i think right he had to get up and time to make the donuts right you know he'll convict us concerning righteousness that we don't possess a righteousness of our own but the Spirit also teaches us that we are righteous because of Christ and points us not to our own righteousness, but to the righteousness of Christ. Spirit convicts concerning judgment. And I believe that the Spirit can say and does say to us, you are not doing this on your own, or if you are judged by your own works, you will be found wanting and you will be judged as a failure, but instead the Spirit says look to Christ and see that if Christ is in you, there is no judgment. 1 John chapter 2, verse 5 speaks of another evidence. Paul says, no, that's John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 5 says, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way way in which he walked the idea here so often I, I just I feel it the minute I read the scripture it's it's default to perfection like go to like but I haven't walked exactly as he walked I don't think it means lives perfectly precisely carrying out perfection that's the law of the flesh instead it's this is the way in which you are to go this is the direction we so easily default to perfection but are we looking at progress? Have our heart and mind changed over time towards the things of God? Walk in the direction in which God has called. Do you have an increasing sense of the righteousness and goodness of God? And do you have an increasing sense of your own inability to carry that out perfectly, but an appreciation for what God has done for you? I believe this is true. Satan and the flesh will never tempt you to trust in Christ. 
They will tempt you to trust in yourself and in your own ability. And they will tempt you to believe that you are not right when in fact you are right. The devil is a liar and an intimidator. The good news is if we resist him, he will flee from us. And so here is an encouragement to you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If we put our faith and trust in Christ, the Bible says this, that all who call upon his name will be saved. That whoever calls upon him will not be put to shame. Have you ever had that experience as a kid where somebody's given something out? You know, maybe somebody's got a, a thing of cupcakes because it's somebody's birthday and they're like, oh, and here's one for you and here's one for you and here's one for you. And then you're like, I'm next. Am I saying too much about my childhood here? And then they're like, they're like, oh, I don't have anything for you, right? This is like Valentine's Day, right? Like everybody gets a Valentine. You know, Charlie Brown goes and he looks in his little box. There's nothing in there. He goes up to the door on the, the Halloween special and everybody's getting candy, you know, and he's dressed up as a ghost with a bunch of holes in his sheet. I wore that costume once. It was awesome. Um, you know, and he goes to the door and the kids are like, I got this, I got that, right? And what does Charlie Brown say? I got a rock. <laughs> that just the feeling of shame of being rejected, whoever calls upon his name will never be disappointed because the spirit is in us. God gives us an irrevocable, absolute guarantee that we are God's children. And so believe this. God's entire reputation depends on it. The truth of the scripture depends on it. That if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you are God's child. You are safe. You will make it. He will accept you. You will endure. You will be whole. And you will not be put to shame. Next week, we'll talk about this dreaded condition at the very end here that says, provided we suffer with him. Don't, don't, don't let that turn into an escape hatch out of the assurances of God's promises. Remember this. Your security, your assurance, and your safety depends on what you are filled with. What you're filled with. And those who put their faith and trust in Christ are filled with God's spirit. And there's no condemnation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. I pray that we would be filled with assurance. I pray that those who struggle with doubts and difficulties and who feel the assaults of the flesh or of Satan, that they would resist them trusting in the power of your promises. I pray that you would give them a strong assurance of the truth of your word and that they would use the words of scripture for what, as, as, as what they're given to us to accomplish, Lord. They are verses to help us fight for joy and security and, and safety. And so we pray that you would arm us with promises. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not know that they are right with you, I pray that they would look to Christ and to all that he accomplished on their behalf, and that they would receive him as the foundation and the fullness of their righteousness, and that they would be saved. Father, we thank you for your many promises that if we call upon you, we will 
be saved. You say that we have the right to call ourselves the children of God. And as John has said, that is what we are. We thank you for that. 